go ahead and look. Everybody, you go. Let's go. All right. <laughs> look at that. It's like a whole new person here. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it's exciting. We've had Suzanne long to have her in the summertime, and she stayed a little longer for the wedding. Uh, and yet, it still feels like five minutes has gone by so quickly. So many things that uh, that we wish we could have spent some time on. So I would encourage you, if you get a chance, to just say hello and express your appreciation and love to her uh, as she departs from us. She'll be leaving Tuesday, and be praying for her, both in the travels and in the work that she is doing over there as she continues to carry the light of Christ uh, into this uh, school where she's training kids. And, and I don't know if you realize one thing to think of a missionary going to, to take the gospel into a foreign land, but there's a in dealing with Christian kids or in Christian families mix that goes along with it. If you've ever been involved at a, at a Christian school uh, or even just thinking of kids growing up in the church, whole other level of thought that goes into that to go beyond religion, to go beyond the offering of, of songs, the offering our lives and receiving Christ and the truth of the gospel through the motions of religion. So uh, pray for Suzanne in that particular ministry as well. Uh, she has opportunities to share the gospel with unsaved, uh, unbelieving uh, folks who maybe have never even heard it or not heard it in its completeness. But to be able to share the gospel and to preach the gospel to those who are already used to the gospel is a profound challenge and a very rewarding when you see that take roots. Uh, Suzanne, thank you for your ministry. We'll be praying for you. All right, I'm going to refocus my mind here because I've got a number of things going through it. And I want to start by uh, refocusing on the text of our of our sermon today. We're back in our Dear Theophilus series. We're working through the book of Luke. And as we do that, um, I think the best place that we can start is with the text itself. Uh, we're going to take a little step because as I'm looking at this, I, I struggled with why in the world is this here? And uh, if you uh, have been in our Wednesday night Bible study, you know one of the most important questions that we can ask about a passage is what is surprising about it? We want to be able to discover something new as we're seeing it. Not not new, creative, novelty things. That you know, new uh, new understandings of scripture are very often old heresies. But we want to make sure that that we're discovering what God has for us by seeing the surprising. And one of the things that was surprising to me is why, as we've been going through kingdom talk, we've been talking about authority. Uh, we've been talking. We're in the middle of this thing about um, perception versus reality, and Locked in the middle of it is this little story, this little vignette of the widow giving her her might, as, as your older translations might say, her small amount that was for her. What is that here for? Why does that fit here? Why is Luke putting it in this perspective? And as I read it uh, over and over and over again, uh, it seems to be a bridge from one section to the next. So we're going to back up to where we what we already looked at last week for just a moment. We're going to extend into what we'll be looking at next week for just a moment to kind of couch this thing in here. So we're going to pick up with Luke chapter 20, verse 45. 
people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was filled with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be torn down. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, taken aback as we have sung these songs this morning and as we're reading these passages, kind of overwhelmed by how shallow our faith is somehow. How shallow our worship often becomes. Father, you've called us to more than just religion and just going through the motions. You've called us to more than putting on a show for other people. And no matter how much we try to do impressive things or to hide our secret sins to keep up appearances to the neighbors. You see past all of that. Father, knowing that you look much deeper within into our hearts is a convicting thought. So Lord, sought to look good, to feel right, and we too often fooled ourselves. Father, as we open your word today, we ask that you would make it live to us. That you would change us by your by the study of your word, that we would see what it is that Luke is trying to tell us in his gospel account, what it is that Jesus is saying in his words, Father, what you are telling us, we need to transform, we need to change, we need to give ourselves over to you, to give you this very life that you gave to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that it's not because of
because of any righteous works on our behalf that you save us. But according to your mercy, your own character. Father, if it weren't for your character, for all your praise, none of us would stand. So all the praise and honor and glory goes to you. Father, in this moment, we ask that you would illuminate your, your word to us by your Holy Spirit. saying that you're probably fool some of the people all the time and you can fool all of the people some of the time and if you remember Spanky from the Little Rascals you can't fool mom any of the time I don't know about mom because sometimes you get fooled but it is an absolute incontrovertible fact that you cannot fool God any of the time that is our core reality what draws this, this passage together that we're looking at these three separate pieces drawn into one cohesive thought. We might fool ourselves or others, but we... I'm going to say it again. I want to make sure that you grasp it. We might fool ourselves or others, but we never fool God. Today, as you're sitting here, some of you seem really, really know in your heart that you're not. Some of you seem together outside to others, and maybe you even are, but God knows you're not. Some of you feel like you're, and maybe it's right of all of us. You see, God sees past what you and I see. We see the outer appearance. We think our life is falling apart when things are going wrong, when our circumstances seem to be out of control. And yet God controls each of those circumstances. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where He wants us to be. He knows exactly where we are. He knows our motives. That's a little scary, isn't it? He knows when we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. He knows when we use the Scriptures to justify doing our thing instead of His. We twist them, and we use them to our advantage. God hates that. But we can't fool Him. He knows. In the text that we just read, we saw this picture of the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus portrays them as now, certainly that's not every individual, and we see certain individuals from that group of people who follow Christ. So it's not everybody, but he's talking about these hypocrites who look real good. They look the part, and yet inside their in their secret actions that people don't see, they're rotten. And then he he sees this widow. Notice it says that he, he sees the rich giving their gifts. He doesn't condemn them. He's not in any way condemning those who have wealth. 
but he's saying this this widow, this woman, she couldn't afford to give what she gave. And nothing was going to stop her from worshiping God with her gifts. She gave more than everybody else. There's a fine. That's great. Fine. Whatever. They gave out of their surplus. She gave it to the poor. And then third, this picture looking at the temple, which seems like an odd connection in some ways. Hopefully we'll see that as we go along here. But the disciples are impressed. They see this beautiful building with stones. They see the, the wealth brought into the treasury. And we're sitting here in a building right now that is a whole lot better than the storefront we've been in for a long time, right? We were marveling yesterday at the wedding over at, at St. John's in this historic building. What a beautiful, beautiful facility. Jesus said, it is pretty, isn't it? Guess what? It's all going to be rubble. The time's coming, it's all going to be thrown down. You talk about the signs of the, the end times. But as we look at this piece where the disciples are seeing one thing and Jesus is drawing their attention away from it, isn't it interesting? They see this beautiful place and Jesus says, yeah, okay. Now, I don't think for a moment that Jesus had any animosity toward the temple. God. In fact, he loves the house of God so much that as soon as he got to Jerusalem, the first thing he does is to cleanse it of those who are in doing their trade. They're in taking advantage of it. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of worship. And instead, it's a marketplace where people are robbing the poor. So Jesus obviously cares about the temple. He, he says, it's my house quoting the Old Testament, speaking in the first person as if he is the Lord. He says, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer. He's turned it into a den of robbers. Not against the temple. He's also not impressed by the facade. Jesus sees past it. As we're going through this, I want to kind of walk us through this, and we'll look at these three pieces and take a look at, at what it is that Jesus is seeing through, what he's seeing past, so that we maybe see how we can see some of those things in our own lives, how we can see beyond those things that are maybe apparent to us. They seem real, but they're not real. First off, we look at these hypocrites. Jesus saw through the show the true character. As he's dealing with them, we see the beware. Jesus saw through the show to the true character. Notice what Luke writes as he quotes Jesus in verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the teachers of the law. Now, I want to stop. I don't think, and we've talked about this in another passage that was similar, I don't think he's saying here, beware of what they can do to you. That wouldn't seem to be in keeping with so much of what Jesus said. Most of the time, danger comes and he's saying, don't sweat it. I got this. Trust God. Go these hostile situations. You don't need a sword. You're going in to take care of business and God has your back. So to say beware of, of uh, these treacherous leaders taking advantage of you 
seems a bit out of step. What he appears to be saying here, I think this is a pretty good take on it. Beware of being like them. He said that before. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. He seems to be telling them, watch out for what they have fallen prey to. Don't be like this. Like what? They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect at the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. We see this a lot in religious circles. Religious celebrities. They, just the term makes me uncomfortable. The idea of religious celebrities. Where we display and have parades and we sell tickets and we have big things. Now, I'm not taking away from, from the necessity of some of those things when you have uh, people who are well-known. There's a reality to it. But there's an attitude. There's a there's difference between someone who is well-known and people follow happens with Jesus, and those who embrace a celebrity status, we're seeing that in the teachers of the law. Those who like to be known, who have their special reserved spaces, who have special seats where they can be noticed, who wear special clothing so that they can be noticed, pastors who like to dress all hip and cool, you don't have to worry about that with me, it's not really my strength. spend a lot of time on their hair. <laughs> yeah, or make jokes during sermons. These are things to watch out for. Beware of. Beware of preachers who get cute. Who think the way to teach the Word is to crack jokes and to entertain. I have to be aware of that every single time I stand up here and open God's Word. Because it's so easy for me to just try to say something clever. Try to say something cute. Try to make it something that you're going to remember from me. Jesus says, beware of that attitude. Don't get caught up in the flowing robes. Don't get caught up in the special seats. Don't get caught up in the entertaining preachers. There's a bigger issue at stake. Notice the contrast. What makes them is less that they're dressed a certain way. In fact, God specifically required in the Old Testament for priests to dress in what we might consider an ostentatious way. Meeting, every part of it was, was commanded by God, but now he seems to be condemning that same thing. There's a contrast between this perception and the reality. They like to be known, they like to be seen, more important with their lengthy prayers. The Vala widow's houses for a sh- make these lengthy prayers so people are important while they're taking advantage of others. They're gaining by the oppression of other people. So these, these men, they'll be punished most severely. It reminds me of James when James tells us, James the half-brother of Christ, says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. You're going to be judged more harshly. There's a higher standard. When you know, you're held accountable for it. You must be aware. Paul says about being an overseer, being a teacher, you desire a noble task. This is an important thing. You should desire that. Every believer should desire to 
raise themselves up to a place where they can instruct others, where they can take a place of maturity and leadership within the church, that's what we should be striving toward as we grow. But when we start to clamor for power, start to clamor for control, we importance over influence, then we've lost sight of what God's called us to. And understand, you're held to a higher standard. Every officer is held to a higher standard than an enlisted, than an enlisted personnel. Every non-commissioned officer is held to a higher standard than, than a junior enlisted person. They're, they're following. Those who lead are held to a higher standard. These men, they know better. They should. Their hypocrisy will be judged and they'll be punished most severely. Jesus saw through the show to the true character. Listen, not everyone who looks pious is pious. Not everyone who looks important is important. Looking the part is not the same as living the part. Let's keep Luke Mark text, but back up to Matthew 6. We're going to spend a little time looking at Matthew 6 as well. We'll refer back to it a couple of times. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining and expounding the scriptures. He's, he's adding understanding to the Old Testament law. The people already knew it. They already heard it. They heard about not lying, not killing, not committing adultery. They knew these things. They also knew a lot of the religious trappings that went along with it. And one of the things that happens when we add legalism, when we go above the line of the text of scripture, is it actually creates sort of an inoculation we become kind of vaccinated against really engaging with the truth of God's Word. So Jesus brings them back in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't dumb it down. He doesn't in any way take away from the law. He actually elevates it. He takes it farther. He said, you heard not to do this. I'm telling you not to even think that. You're doing it in your heart. You are not to do it in your hands, not to do it with your body, not to take those actions. That's great. But the actions start inside. I'm telling you, by the time that root starts to grow down inside of you, you're already in sin. You need to check that. Get the inside right. Following on those ideas, in Matthew chapter 6, we'll start with verse 1 and read uh, a whole bunch. Uh, so as we go through this, Jesus is following on those same concepts. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That doesn't mean not to let anybody see you doing anything. Notice what he says. Not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. It's not sinful if somebody happens to notice you worshiping God. Really? Of course not. But if you're doing it to be seen by them, are you really worshiping God? You've missed the if you're doing it for anybody else. So you should take pains to make sure that you're not getting credit from other people for that. For God. Here's what he says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Sounds like he might be referring to some of the same people he's talking about in Luke here. Maybe, just maybe, he's talking about some of us. Don't announce it with trumpets, as 
the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you get the attention of other people, that's great. You're not getting the attention of God. You've received your reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do it doesn't say if, does it? It doesn't say if you give to the needy. It says when you give to the needy. It's an expectation. This should be a standard. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He's uh, getting their, their virtue signaling all the time. They're going to always take a lot of credit for their giving. That's great. They're corporations. He's not talking about corporations. You and I are not corporations. Our giving is not to be promotional advertising. Our giving should be because we have a heart that wants to bless others, that wants to honor God, not because we want people to notice. That's specifically why we don't pack a plate here. We don't want you to feel pressured to give. We want you to give cheerfulness of your heart because you want to honor God, to worship Him. First fruits, so to speak. And if you see contribute to that, we want you to be able to do that freely without wondering about, oh man, what's the person next to me thinking? I only put in a dollar. They put in a check. I don't even know. I don't even write a check for a dollar. I don't know what's going on. I better write a, I better write a check. I better give a little more. Listen, if it takes that for you to give more, I don't want your money here because God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. He wants your life. Your money's a reflection of that. So if your money is reflecting your heart, wonderful. God accepts that worship. But God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need mine. He has no needs. He owns it all. Demand purity of worship. Sometimes we get excited and then I walk away from the text. Give me a second to catch up. your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, you might want to underline that particular thing. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That's a theme throughout what we're talking about here in Luke. In all three of these vignettes, we're going to see that idea that our Father sees what is done in secret. He knows what's happening in the hidden place inside of me. He doesn't need the show. He doesn't need fancy words in the prayer. He already knows. Your heart. Do it in secret so that your giving is not known by everybody else. That your giving may be in secret. That other things in secret will reward you. Verse 5. When you pray, be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Again, this is not about public prayer in itself. That is required by God in many passages. It is expected by God. It is celebrated by God. We bless one another as we speak to the other. Public prayer is a wonderful But if I'm doing it for others to hear how cool I am, how spiritual I am, how wonderfully repentant I am, see how humble I am wonderful thing. You should pick up my, my book, Humility and How I Achieved It. So, the completely stolen line, I don't have anything new. 
But the reality of it is, if we're if we're doing this, if we're praying so other people think we sound spiritual, then we're not praying at all. Don't do that. What the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father, then your father who sees what is done in secret, I might underline that again, will reward you. on babbling like pagans and think you'll be heard because of their many words. All of the incantations of pagan religions. I'm reminded of, of uh, Isaac confronting the prophets of Baal. And as he confronts these 450 prophets of Baal, they're out there wailing and weeping and offering up these fancy, long, babbling prayers, cutting themselves, going through all of this self Flagellation. Be careful with that word. And, and as they're doing this, Elijah just kind of sits back, shaking his head. Are you done yet? Okay, Lord. And the, the Father lights up the altar, sends fire from heaven. Doesn't just burn up the sacrifice; he burns up the altar, burns up the water around the altar. They're all cutting themselves. All Elijah has to do is say, "Father." need a bunch of babbling prayers. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before he before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. This, right? If not, let's get it in our heads and hearts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, this already hurts. Anytime he starts a sentence like that, I, I already know I'm failing. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. There's a conditional statement here. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Conversely, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. In other words, put on your makeup. Take care of yourself. That's what they're talking about here. Wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, repeated words maybe are telling us something, will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures for yourself in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew has an awful lot to say about Luke. When we're reading the Scriptures, we want to see the whole of it. We won't take as much time on looking at Matthew as we go through because we've read it, we can refer back to it. But understand that it's not what it looks like that matters. Jesus saw through the show to the true character. We might fool ourselves, we might fool others. 
Ain't no way you're going to fool God. Check this out. Character is more than appearance. Character is more than appearance. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, Samuel is going to anoint the new king. King Saul has been rejected by God. Saul was the perfect candidate. By all standards, he was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. Tallest guy, that's one of the ways they measured leadership back then. I'll just leave that hanging for you. But as as they're seeing Saul, he's everything they wanted in a king. Everything that God did not. God rejected Saul, and now he sent Samuel to go and choose another king. And he goes to the house of Jesse, and you know how this goes, I believe, and he brings out all the, the brothers. Jesse brings out all of his sons, and they're tall, and they're good-looking, and they're charismatic, and, and all the whatever you can pick out, well-dressed, I don't know. They're all Bears fans, I, I don't know. Because they did a week ago. But in the reality of it, none of them are chosen. And Samuel's thinking to himself as he sees this very capable-looking son standing in front of him, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before me here. And God says, not so fast. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God is the heart. Then they bring out the youngest. Nobody else. Because God's, he says it's none of these. Well, I still got my youngest kid. He's kind of scrawny. He's out in the field. No sense for him. They they bring him in. And David doesn't look the part. He's not what's expected. But God calls him a man after his own heart. We know him as the great king of Israel. He is the one from whom Jesus would come. God makes a promise to David, the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah would come from his line, that one from his line would always on Jesus. And it starts with, really, him? No, God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. He sees past it all. Character is more than appearance. Notice also, holiness in the heart. <clears throat> holiness starts in the heart. Romans 12, 1 and 2. <clears throat> Romans 1 and 2 talks about the fact that in light of everything that God's done for us, in view of His mercy, we need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Right? So, He's given Himself for us, ourselves, to surrender ourselves to Him. It doesn't have to do anything, does it? Sacrifice doesn't have to be talented or good. It just has to be given. We have to give ourselves to Him, put ourselves on the altar, and let God do what He's going to do. But after that, it says that we're not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this. But instead, we're to be transformed. Okay, there's a passive voice here. Transformed, changed from within. Not our own doing. Not, not change yourself. But be changed. Be morphed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an inside job. Holiness starts in here. It starts in the inner person. Being set apart for God. It's not about being a fancy 
spiritual person and looking the part more than others, it's talked about that. It's not a well make your fancy prayer or if you fight for church. Not a, none of those things. But you've been set apart for God. Holiness starts in the heart. Thirdly, righteousness shows in actions. Righteousness shows in actions. In James 1, one of the things I love about the book of James is it's very practical. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the theological, and James gets down to it and says, okay, this is good, but understand, if your faith is just faith you talk about, it's not really faith. If you trust God, it shows up in how you behave. Don't just hear the word. I can tell you right now, if you come to real life, you will hear the word of God. I was hoping somebody was going to say that. You will get the word of God here, but what you do with it is up to you. James says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. When you hear it, you need to make it yours. You need to own it. Say, okay, Lord, I got it. I heard it. think I like it. I'm just going to take a pass on that one. That's not how it works. In verse 27 of chapter 1, James says that religion that God considers pure and faultless, that's acceptable by God, is the kind of religion that cares for widows and orphans. Now, it's not saying that social justice is the point of the gospel. Not in any way. He's saying if you love Him, if you know Him, and you take the word into yourself, it's going to come out, it's going to show up in your actions and how you take care of people. Holiness starts in the heart. Righteousness shows in actions. Holiness is that beginning. It's that being set apart for God. Righteousness is what I do about it. Particularly in how I handle this, how I treat other people. Understand this. I can never treat God better than I treat other people. Never treat God than I treat other people. That's why Jesus said that whatever you've done to the least of these, you've also done it to me. When we act toward other people, we represent Him if we are in Him. And if we're not in Him, we're already going down a bad path. We're already destined for destruction. And the only way out of that is to be in Christ. We'll talk about that at the end. But I can never treat God better than treat other people. Jesus sought me to show to the true character. The hypocrites were talking about giving. When Jesus talks about giving, there's a, a principle that we see here. Jesus saw through the size of the gift to the nature of the giving. Jesus saw through the size of the gift to the nature. Now, this is an exciting thing for the widow. It's not an exciting thing for those who are giving gifts out of surplus. I'm going to add a category here that isn't in this text, but I think we recognize it in our experience. This is not an exciting thing for those of us who think we can use it as a cop-out. I hear a lot of people talking about, well, tithing, and that's an Old Testament concept. God doesn't really call us to tithe today. Well, that's probably true in a sense. 
And some of my Bible teachers believe that. But those same Bible teachers would say, 10% is way too small a percent for you to be giving. If you're in Christ, 10% is, that, that's nothing. You should be seeking to live on that 10% and give the 90%. So if that's your perspective as well, tithing is an Old Testament concept. Okay, then let's go with the New Testament concept. Sell your property. I don't think any of us are doing that, right? So maybe, just maybe, we should stop using Scripture in a twisted way as a cop-out. Now I'll say with some conviction, that's kind of how I grew up. My dad used to not practice tithing. He, he, you know, he wasn't that he was not a generous guy in, in many ways, but he, his excuse to my mom was, well, I live for Christ, so everything that I have is his, right? Whatever I do with my money, it all belongs to God. So not, I don't really have to tithe because everything belongs to God. Raise your hand if you think that was a good, good enough excuse for the Lord. Uh, no. Later on, my father, as he grew, and was, as, that's the beginning. This is how I set my heart. The tithe, the Old Testament concept, which predates the law, by the way, before the law was given, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So there's a principle there. We don't see it done away with in the New Testament. What we do see, however, is that the tithe kind of primes the pump. It changes me. Tithing, giving 10% of my gross income off the top before I do anything else, before I even pay my taxes. I'm, I'm right off the bat, I want to say, okay, Lord, 10%, my first fruit, the very best, the very first, it belongs to you. Not because I'm given to a fancy preacher, not because I'm giving to contribute to the parking lot or the air conditioning. I'm giving this to you. This is my act of worship, much like the Sabbath put in place, to keep it holy, to remember our God. And the purpose of the Sabbath and the purpose of the tithe are dovetailed to cause us to own our dependence on God. When I realize it's not my strength that provides for me, yes, I still have to get a job. There's the wonder. The same God who helped us to understand that He's our provider also says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. So we need to understand there is a very strong reality to what has been historically known as the Protestant work ethic. That's a biblical precedent. But God has us give of first fruits, not because that's required for our salvation, but because that's required for our hearts. We need to be set right. And when we start by saying, Father, for any of it, 100% of what I get, is yours. And I'm going to demonstrate that by taking this 10% and I'm going to give that to you. Now, I'm going to trust that me and 90% with you is better than me 100% without you. God's just testing. See if I won't take care of you. Some of you have put that to the test and you know God honors that. But when we're looking at this, it's not about trying to earn points with God. So don't be confused. We need to own our dependence on Him. Jesus saw through the size of the gift to the nature of giving. Not everyone who looks generous is generous. It's not the, the size of the gift that matters. 
The size of the gift is not the significance of the gift. Get this, though. Not in your program, but you might write it down. Nothing, and I mean nothing, clarifies the distinction between perceived righteousness and real righteousness like my attitude toward giving. You want to clarify where your values are, where your priorities are? Take a look at your budget. Take a look at your... Do you still have it? Where's your money going to? Check for yourself. How much money are you giving in worship to God? How much money are you giving in generosity to others? Versus how much money are you spending on your own comfort and luxury? Not saying don't spend on your own comfort and luxury. We see that happen over and over again in the scriptures. Not condemned. But hold on loosely. Because if I don't hold on loosely, as Corey Ten Boom says, it hurts when God pries my fingers from around it. He won't have any idols stand between you and him, including your wealth. Nothing, nothing in our lives clarifies the distinction between perceived righteousness and real righteousness, like my attitude toward giving. Jesus wants us to give generously. He wants us to give cheerfully. He wants us to give faithfully. He wants us to give sacrificially. But he also wants us to see the difference between reality and perception. The reality of my giving displays the reality of my relationship with Christ more than my words or appearance ever could. Back in Matthew, when we were looking at chapter 6, take a look at verse 4. Uh, verses 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. God wants this giving because it's good and it's right. But as he's talking about here, these alms, this giving to the needy, that's not the time. That's not That's the giving to take care of others, the generosity. Let money be a tool that just flows through you. You're just emptying that toolbox out to help people. Who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Those are others who can't fool God. First off, notice this. Giving to God is an act of worship. Giving to God is an act of worship. Jumping from Matthew to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I hope you still have Luke Mark because we're going to take a look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. From Matthew and Luke, you're moving to the right to get to 2 Corinthians. We're at the back of the book. When you get to 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to pick up with verse 6. Paul writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Farmers get that. You're going you're gonna to harvest in, in uh, relation to how you actually planted. I can't expect to harvest three fields if I only planted one. That's not how it works. And in, in ancient times, they sowed seed. They planted by scattering. They didn't plant in rows like we do now. They would scatter the seed. And if you only get a little bit of seed out there, you're only going to get a little bit back. Sow more, you're going to get more back. Oh, but I might lose some seed. I might waste some seed. Okay, but you're going to reap in accordance with what you sow. 
All right, so remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you, check this out now. This is a really important principle for us. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly. Everybody say not reluctantly. Or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. My favorite preacher, Chuck Swindoll, loves to say, loves to point out that the Greek here, hilarion, is the same word from which we get hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Think about that. When you're giving, when you're putting your offering in the box, when you're writing a check to support a missionary, when when you're giving to that guy on the street who you know is begging for your money going to a ball game that you're going to go drop, you know, what is that? When you're doing that, does it make you smile inside? Does laughter want to bubble out from you? Can you call yourself a hilarious giver? Man, it is so exciting to get to give this money. Not many of us have that attitude. But that's the kind of giving he wants this to be a cheerful voluntary act of worship. Interestingly, again, here, Paul's not even talking about the worship act of it, but the attitude that goes behind it. Indeed, of the attitude of giving that honors God. Giving to God is an act of Back to Luke. In the midst of this this section, we see the warning against the attitudes of the hypocrites. We see the praise of this in her giving. Not a criticism of the rich, but praise of the of the poor woman. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, out of their surplus. She gave out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Understand, sacrifice is a measure of devotion. She's being praised not for how much she gives, but for that it hurt her to do it. And yet there's no indication here of regret. Again, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So she has circumstances that make it hard for her to give. The widow at this time would have had no way of providing for herself. She's going to be destitute. These two copper coins are all she has to live on, according to the Lord. And I trust it. It would have been really easy for her to say, I want to give to God. But he understands. She's in a tight spot right now. She doesn't have an option. How many of us, forgive me if this hurts a little. I would apologize, but I'm not sorry. How many of us have to cut back on our giving to God because we're giving too much to the credit card company? How many of us can't afford to support a missionary because we just had to have that cable package? We just had to have that streaming subscription or that pumpkin spice latte, which in itself could pay for an awful lot of things. I'm not condemning any of these things. Let's not use these as excuses. This widow did not let her circumstances keep her from her commitment. She was committed, devoted. I will worship God with my wealth. 
poverty, it did not change. May we be so devoted. Sacrifice is a measure of devotion. It reveals my values. I mentioned this earlier. You want to see where your values are? Take a look at where your money goes. What was it that that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six nineteen, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you're spending your money, where you value things, that's where your affections will be. You can see what you care about by where your money is. My money reveals my values. In Acts 5, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. There are so many places in this particular passage that it applies. Ananias and Sapphira, in the earliest part of the church, has only existed now for three chapters. Right? So Jesus dies, uh, he is resurrected, he goes to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, the people are filled with the Spirit. Church launches. Right? This is what Jesus has, has uh, given, it's what he's told, it's why he said it's better for me to go away, so I'm not with you anymore, then, then you have the Spirit with all of you, except me right here. A couple of chapters in, now, everybody is living together. They're in harmony. They're all in one accord. They're sharing their stuff so that nobody is, is in need because everybody's being taken care of. People are living generously. People are even selling off their properties and giving it to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira come in as man and wife, and they do the same thing. He decided, nobody's compelling him, Ananias decided he's going to sell off a piece of property and present the money to the church. And his wife is on board with the whole thing. She knows exactly what's going on. But they're going to pretend to present the whole thing to the church and only present part of it. Think that might be a problem? Now, (laughs) Peter points out in, in the conversation that follows, what's the deal here? Nobody made you do this. Did you not have the right to do whatever you wanted with your own property? You could have sold it and given part of it to the church and been cool. You could have kept it and not given it to the church and been cool. But what you did instead was to try to impress people with your giving. Uh-oh. So you said you did this, much like the hypocrites we saw earlier. Look at me. I'm giving money to the church. How important am I? I sold off that property. I kind of wonder if it was a piece of property he was looking to get rid of anyway. We love to be generous with our donations of things we don't want. How important am I? Um, hey, Anna, is that really the amount you got for that property? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's every penny. Hmm. God is displeased. You know what happens to Ananias? Exterminated. <laughs> That's a Ananias is killed by God on the spot, dropped dead. I don't know if it was a heart attack or aneurysm, however God did it. Immediate judgment right now, dead. His wife comes in a little afterwards. Hey, is this the amount that he got for the property? Oh, yeah, sure. Dead. What a church service. Carry him out. They're still carrying her husband's body out when she walks in, lies, dead. Money reveals my values. They valued the opinions of others. 
rather than the opinion of God. How many of us are doing the same thing? I mean, that's the question I have to ask myself right now. And you have to ask Because they're already dead. They don't matter to us in that sense. But we're still living. We're still making choices. Am I living so I have a religious reputation? So I look good to other people? Or am I doing these things between me and God and the integrity of my heart? My money reveals my value. Lastly, we look at work. They see the... Some of his disciples in verse 5 were remarking, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, a gift dedicated to God. Wow, real life must be doing great. They got a new building. Oh, wow, they got two campuses now. Look how great they're doing. I have so many people tell me this. And I'm thankful. It's great. Must be doing well because look at how they got these buildings. That's not the measure of the church. And I don't care if we're meeting in a tent out back. Of the church, are we walking with God? Are we proclaiming the Word of God faithfully? Are we living out the purpose of a church? Not do we have a nice building? Temples are impressed. They're re- remarking about how beautiful the temple is. Jesus said, eh. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of He's referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. I think he is. Whether he's talking to the, about the ultimate changeover and the signs of the times that he'll be seeing later on, that's what he moves into. I think he uses his prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, to launch into the day of the later. That's the next week. What he's saying is, you're missing the point. Jesus saw through the presentation to the purpose. Jesus saw through the presentation to the purpose. It wasn't what the temple looked like. It never was. When David wanted to commit himself to the Lord to build a temple, God says, what do I need a temple? Did I ask you to build me a temple? Did I ever once tell you that I wanted a temple? I told you how to build a tabernacle, a tent for moving around in the desert, I never asked you for a temple. Nonetheless, he allowed Solomon to build it so that they could honor God with their wealth, and they did. But eventually, what ends up happening is we begin building the edifice rather than the God who edifies. He sees past the presentation. Oh, it's beautiful. Herod's temple was adorned. It was it was an MTV crib special, right? It was, this was a big-time place. Herod wanted to be known. He was a builder. And he wanted to build his reputation. Jesus brought presentation to the purpose. Not everything that looks beautiful and sacred is beautiful and sacred. Not everything that looks enduring is enduring. Not everything that looks impressive is impressive. The appearance of worship is not the substance of worship. I love the music that we all like. 
Colts fan too. Who cares? Honestly, and I'm not you know, happy or related to the story. I love you. I love that we have good music. But I would rather have ten of us alone without musical instruments squawking out poorly amazing grace than to have the greatest sounds in the world and the best technology in the world and miss the heart of God. It's not about that. When we sing that song, we almost didn't have it. It was a late ad. Very frustrated with me. It was a late ad for us to do the heart of worship this morning. We had to kick something else out to put that in. We can't not do this song. This is the point. This is the entire point. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about real life. It's not about our reputation or how it looks or how it sounds or how it feels or if it makes my conscience feel better. It's not about that. It's about adoring the one who is worthy of being adored. That's it. That's what worship is about. the richness of the teaching in these old hymns. Sometimes, as much as I love modern worship, I look at it and I compare it and I'm like, I, I think Charles Wesley would laugh. Because that's not a song. My dad said to my mom once, that's not a prayer. That's, that's not a song. Come on, man. You just said the same three words over and over again. You hit the same five chords. And it sounded great. And maybe your instrumentation is great. You've got a great studio to record it in. And you've got fantastic players. But you're dying messed up, and you've missed the heart of God. That's not what worship is about. Now we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. If this ever becomes the point, may God end this church. It can't be. It's all about Him. He looks farther than a song. Matthew 6, 18. When you're fasting, when you do your, your acts, not for other people. It's between you and God. He sees what is done in secret. We might fool ourselves or others, but we can never fool God. Mark these last three things here. First, ritual must reflect reality. Ritual must reflect reality. There is absolutely nothing wrong with ritual. How many of you grew up in a Catholic church? Raise your hand. One or two. How many of you grew up in in a Lutheran church? Anybody? Lutherans out there? How many of you grew up in a Presbyterian church? So if you grew up in any of those churches or many others, you probably grew up reciting various creeds. You probably grew up learning various catechisms that probably really uh, went along. If it didn't take root in you, maybe at some point began to annoy you. Oh man, another responsive reading. My brother hates responsive reading. Every time I do it, he's like, Rick, knock it off. There is power in ritual when the ritual reflects the reality. Before we had a New Testament canon, I want to make sure everybody's paying attention. Before we had a New Testament cohesively brought together as the canon, as the accepted scriptures, the church was reciting the Apostles' Creed. Did you know that? The Apostles' Creed is older than the canon of Scripture. They were here. We had these books. We hadn't drawn it together yet. And some of the books hadn't been written before the creeds were being passed about. 
most of the creeds we know were later, but we have some of the scriptures quoting some of those ancient hymns and creeds. Why? Because the ritual helps to teach that reality. There is beauty and power and, and worthiness in a catechesis, in a, in a teaching through question and answer and memorizing. Some of you here in this room, I've used you as examples before, grew up in church memorizing things, and you had all the songs in your head, and you learned the verses, and you had lanograph in your Sunday school classroom, so you knew all the stories, but you weren't saved yet. Then, when God got a hold of your heart, it exploded, because the foundation was already there. There is beauty and power in ritual. But the ritual must always reflect the reality. We have to connect it. We have to take those same things that become boring when we just go through the motions and engage our hearts and minds so that we recognize the power to know what we believe, to stand together, to memorize scriptures, to recite creeds and confessions, to sing hymns that we've sung a thousand times before. This time today, it hits me in that new way. Ritual must reflect reality. Next, Jesus points out to them as he says that that uh, this is all going to be torn down. It's all going to be rubble at one point. External things are passing. External things are passing. Second Corinthians four four eighteen. Sorry, four eighteen. Paul says we don't focus anymore on on the things that are seen. We don't get caught up in our suffering. We don't get caught up in our joy. We don't focus on the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporary. They're passing, going away. But the unseen things are eternal. External things are passing. Understand that all of the trappings of our worship, it ain't going to look like this in heaven. It's not. We're not going to sit in pews or chairs in a nice little building. We're not going to have our our five songs set in our particular liturgy, we're going to have what God tells us to do. He's going to lay this out for us. And what we see is over and over again the beauty of worship. But it doesn't look like what we got here. Shoot, man, we're hanging out. How different can it be? We're used to pulling robes, pulpit. It's all external. Giving is going to be when we throw down our crowns at the feet of Christ. Say, Lord, I'm unworthy of any reward. I want to give it to you. Thank you for it. I want to give it back to you as an act of worship. We spend our lifetime in perfect intimacy with Him, our lifetime, our eternity in perfect intimacy with Him. I promise you will not be bored. Thirdly, God rejects surface religion. God rejects surface religion. In other words, a pretty corpse is still dead. The temple was dead. The worship of Israel was dead. They had forsaken God. Jesus has made this point over and over again. He cursed the fig tree that represented Israel. You'll never bear fruit again. That was, that was a pronouncement. He's condemned so much of what was because it missed the mark. It missed the point. 
It had the presentation, but it didn't have the purpose. He saw past all that stuff. And so as he's dealing with this, we see this strong picture that God rejects surface religion. The Old Testament prophets hammered this over and over. Get your worship out of here, the Lord says. Your sacrifices, they're not a pleasing aroma to me. They're the stench of death. Take it away. I hate your worship. That's not something you want to hear from God. Even recently, in Luke chapter 11, you can turn back there. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus deals with these Pharisees in the same way. With these teachers of the law. Because they've got the outside right. They're concerned about the ritual. They've missed the reality. They're doing the external things. They're missing the internal and eternal things. Their religion is on the surface. Starting with verse 37. When Jesus had speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Mind you, that Jesus could have washed before the meal. It's not like he was unaware. He was making a point. He was stirring the pot, so to speak. He wanted to have this conversation that followed. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish. Great. I added that. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Notice between what he had just said about them. He had just said about, the, in, in, not in Luke 11, but what we just read in Luke 20. He had just said, they're devouring widows' houses. That's not the same thing, right? Stark contrast. Same group of people. Want, you want to show that you're clean on the inside? Take care of the widows. Stop devouring their houses. Stop being hypocrites. He goes on. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. They're tithing, right? They're getting it. All the way down to their spices. They're, they're in the kitchen sorting out their spices to tithe a tenth of that as their act of worship. So called but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the, the latter without leaving the former undone. In other words, keep with the tithe. Keep doing that. But get your heart right. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over it. In other words, you are unclean. People don't even realize it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Not just the Pharisees, you're coming after us. Jesus, being very gentle, of course, doubles down and replies, You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets. External stuff. Your ancestors killed them. 
do you testify that you did? They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, others whom they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. For the blood of Abel, the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. This generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you, experts, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, you've hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions waiting to catch him in something he might say. God rejects surface religion. No matter how you dress it up, no matter how much makeup you put on it, how much perfume you spray, a pretty corpse is still dead. Listen, as we wrap this thing up now, we might fool ourselves or others, fool God. Our character is more important than our reputation. How we give reflects our heart. Our worship must please God, not impress other people. God sees in secret. No fooling Him. He sees even our motives. Understand, God seeing our motives, God's not, well, God knows I'm doing my best. No, this is not an acquittal. It's not a defense. Only damnation. Because God knows us all the way through in the parts that we hide when we think we've got it together, the fact that He knows us should petrify us. He knows the truth. There is and can be no defense. That's why the gospel is so simple. Every one of us, we have nothing to offer. Our best is like filthy rags. We can't come to God and I did my best. So did I. Welcome to hell. I don't mean to make it sound trite, but that is right. We can't impress God. We can't fool God. We can't religion our way into heaven. Stuck. We're created for a relationship with Him. There is no other real purpose to our existence. That, no matter what science wants to say, okay, science has its own stuff, that is the one that specifically sets us apart from everything else in the created order. It's not that we're just the highest on the chain, the latest in a, in a series of evolution. That's, if that's the case, then we're not really set apart from anything. But we bear the image of God. We're created for a relationship with Him. That's what sets us apart. But we're separated because of sin. We can't have that relationship. And we can't fix it. We're not good enough. Our hands are stained. It's like when you're making uh, some jelly toast and you get jelly on the knife handle and then it gets on your fingers and everything you touch when you're trying to clean up gets more jelly on it. Right? That's how our sin is. It keeps sticking to everything. And we can't get rid of it. We need somebody from outside to make a way for us. To get us out of this mess. That's what Jesus did. He had no sin of His own. So He became sin for us. Theologians call that penal substitutionary atonement. He took the penalty as our substitute to make us right with God. All we have to do, all we ever can do, place all of our hope and trust in that parachute. 
It's either this or I die. When you jump out of a plane, your only hope is that the parachute works. There is nothing else. You can't flap your arms. I got my big, heavy son here who jumps out of airplanes for a living, or used to. And all this, you go splat. That's what our religion is, is flapping your arms as you're dropping to the ground. Jesus is our parachute, and all we have to do is trust Him. There is nothing else. If we do, it's just life that's eternal and abundant and free and full and never-ending. We might fool ourselves or others, but we can never fool God. The Lord sees through it all, so there's no hiding, no faking, just reality. I want to invite you to live in that reality. If you're outside of if you haven't received Him, if you haven't seen Him to be your only hope, if you haven't seen Him as that parachute that keeps you from eternal death, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a better chance? Because this is the day. You've had it laid in front of you. You know that you can't fool Him. He knows you inside and out. You don't know that you will have tomorrow, so don't wait. If you haven't turned your life over, do it now. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I'm done. You're driving. I'm out of the way. I'm all yours. When you receive Christ, He gives you the right to become a child of God, no longer His enemy, but now you're His child, and He loves you. And the right thing to do is to show everybody, hey, I'm all in with Jesus. I want to come publicly. That's what baptism is all about. To declare to everybody, I belong to Jesus. I died with Him. And I've been raised to a new life with Him. That's why we baptize. That's why Jesus told us to baptize. We participate in the family. I want to encourage you, if you have been saved, to live in this reality of knowing that God sees committing and connecting with your church family. With the other people walking on this journey with you. We're on our way to a celestial city. And on this great progress, this great pilgrimage that we have, we're in it together. And none of us in ourselves are clean. All of us have dirt that only Jesus can remove. We don't have to hide it. Let's engage with that reality. Let's live in that reality from the inside out, giving Him our lives. He gave His life for us. Let's pray together. Father, I don't really know how to thank You enough. I don't have words that can convey it. Father, the only logical response is to recognize that we owe you everything. Every moment, every thought. Help us to give you ourselves, to give you our hearts. Father, change our desires. Make us yours. Transform us. Make us like Christ that as we live in the reality of who He is, we would reflect Him to everyone else through the relationships we give us. We pray this in His name.